Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson, the podcast where she speaks to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about why they connect with nature. Dave Verholst co-founded Forest Play in 2011 with a goal of facilitating programs that connect people to nature, others, and themselves. Forest Play is grounded in the learning philosophies of coyote mentoring and forest schools and inspired by the understanding that stories, wilderness skills, and sensory experiences in nature can help children and adults be more creative, resilient, and emotionally intelligent. He has a master's degree in recreation management, is an accredited master interpretive guide, a wilderness first responder, and proud father of two wonderful daughters. Please welcome the wonderful Dave Verhulst. Dave Verhulst, welcome to Let's Take This Outside. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, great. It's not wonderful to be here. Uh, you have a great background. I know we can't see it in audio, but you specifically chose this because it's a nice nature theme in your daughter. is your daughter's room, right? It is, yeah. Yeah, she uh, she chose this actually a number of years ago. She wanted to have a bit more nature in her room, especially when she was doing more uh, more of the online learning uh, during COVID. And uh, it was pretty interesting. She actually chose this beautiful picture with a lake and a waterfall. And I mean, it covers almost her entire wall. She calls it a tapestry. Yeah. Is, is it like material or is it like a, yeah. yeah it's, it's material. Yeah. I think it's great. Uh, before we jump into your business forest play, I would love to, t- to know more about you and your background before we hit record. You were mentioning that you were a guide, but where did your love of nature first start? You know, it started when I was a kid. I grew up in Peterborough, Ontario, um, actually just a little bit north of there between Peterborough and, and Lakefield. And uh, the area where I grew up, my house was on just about an acre of property. And there was a lot of space around us. Uh, and it's something that at the time I really took for granted because, you know, behind the house, there was an abandoned apple orchard that my sister and I used to play in all the time. And then as my other two sisters, I have three sisters in total, got older, we all sort of went to the woods and to the orchard to play. And so there was the orchard on one side and then Kitty Corner, there was a forest uh, through there. And then that connected up with fields and forests and things beyond for for really quite a large uh a large space. So that's that's where I grew up. And then I spent a lot of my summers at a cottage, like a lot of people who in, in Ontario do. And that ended up becoming what drove me to have an outdoor career. You know, when I went to decide, had to make that decision about where to go to university and what to study, the thing that I found made me most happy was when I was in a canoe on the water outside. And I thought, well, if I can make a career out of that, that'd be great. Uh, so that drove me to Lakehead University, where I did a uh, double degree in outdoor recreation, parks and tourism, um, a- along with a BA in history. And then later that became a master's degree in a similar field. But I've been working for over 22 years in, in some outdoor related field, whether it's working as a guide, working during forest play or working doing outdoor leadership programs for the corporate world. Uh, we're going to get to forest play in just a second, but in your on your website, something caught my attention, and we we chatted about this. You mentioned connection to nature, each other, and ourselves, and I laughed because in my promo, we've never you know we've never met before. I've never googled like I didn't Google you before like I created my podcast or anything. But in my promo, I had written like that is part of it. It says like feeling more connected to nature, each other, and ourselves. So what is it about that phrase that spoke to you that as it spoke to me as we as we created this? Yeah, well, I guess over the years, what I've 
found myself is that you can't really connect to nature if you don't have a connection to yourself or others. And nature is part of us. We are part of the natural world. And if we're not able to connect to ourselves, we won't be able to connect very well to nature. If we can't connect to nature, it's difficult to connect to others because we're really missing a core component of who we are. And people inherently are connected beings. They're connected to the natural world, to other people, because uh, throughout time, people don't do well on their own. You know, despite the emphasis on survival shows of people just going out there and making it on their own, the reality is, is that as a species, we wouldn't have made it very far if we didn't have a community around us. And so we yearn for connection to others, to community, to the peers that are around us. And that connection needs to happen at the same time as we're connecting to the natural world, the thing that gives us everything we need to survive. And that connection to self really is enhanced by both those things as well. So there's these three things that really are like an intertwined rope. And without all of them working together, um, neither one works well. I just, I'm getting um, emotional almost hearing you talk about it because it's really hard to dis- to, to describe in words that those feelings. So thank you for putting it so eloquently and so beautifully. Oh yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, working in the in the guiding world where I worked many years. I mean, we talked a lot about connecting people to nature. And for a long time, the work in environmental education and that stream really focused on nature alone, right? We just must connect with nature or else we're, we're done as a species. And the work that I came across that really connected these other two pieces into it was the work of John Young and Coyote Mentoring or the Eight Shields Movement. And he saw that this is really a cultural enterprise. And if you really want to get this done well and to really heal the rift that's happening with people and nature and the planet. And we have to heal all of these things together. Uh, and if, if, if we just do one, it just won't end up being nearly as successful or as deep and profound as it could be. What is Forest Play and where did you get the idea to start it? <laughs> yeah, what's Forest Play? <laughs> is that, is that a loaded question, Dave? <laughs> well, it's an interesting question because I think, I think some people expect to hear maybe that this was my lifelong dream and I just did a, you know, decided this was what I was going to do from an early age. And that's, that's not the story. <laughs> I just want the truth. I just want the truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think like many things, the story ends up being a little bit more complicated and it's, it's more like there's stepping stones throughout my life that led me to this. And I mean, you asked me about my original connection to nature, where did that happen? And I was mentioning my time in Peterborough. I mean, without that, forest play wouldn't have happened. Without my own time playing freely in the natural world, it would be very difficult for me to do the work that I do now. And the reason for that is that a lot of what I do is about presence. It's about how I hold myself when I'm with the kids outside. How comfortable am I outdoors and how comfortable am I, am I doing free play for example and just picking things up and exploring play through through imagination and because I had that experience as a child it was easier for me to plug into this system whether it's the forest school system or the eight shield system um, because the synapses the memories and the emotional connection to the natural world was already there so forest play really evolved out of 
partly my own desire to connect other people to the natural world, but also out of sort of my experience having children. Uh, so when I was working professionally before I had kids, I was working as a guide and I was under the impression that a lot of guides are, you know, that I'll, I'll keep my people safe as they're either on the river or we're hiking on the trail. And my job is to sort of manage the risk that's out there, as well as to share some of the stories of this landscape so that they develop a connection to it. And my first encounter with the eight shields was because I wanted to be a better guide. And they had a naturalist training program that they had developed. And I thought, okay, well, I want to be a better guide. They've got a cool program. Let's go and explore what that training is like. What is eight shields? Can you, do you mind? Sorry to interrupt. I just want, what is eight shields? Yeah, Eight Shields or Coyote Mentoring is a uh, is a mentoring system developed by John Young and a number of others that really is designed to connect people to nature themselves and others. It's a template that's been developed and mapped on the eight directions. So if you imagine a compass wheel, you have north uh, all the way around through southeast, west, and so on. And each one of those directions has an archetypal energy to it. And part of what John's focus has been is to try and map how people develop connection. So he's explored his own uh, personal development as a person and developing his own connection, explored what happened to him that resulted in his both his vast knowledge of the natural world as well as his feeling of connectedness and purpose. And then he's had other people contribute to this model. Many First Nations communities have developed um, and contributed to his model and shared knowledge and experience with him, whether that's in North America or Africa or Australia or Hawaii. From all over the world, people have contributed different pieces to his model to try and make it more robust. And then one of his big hopes was this, with this model was that it would work for everybody and no matter where they were in the world. So it have a universality to it. So it's based on the patterns that are observable in the natural world. It's not a specific cultural model. It's based on more universal patterns that are observable in the natural world that we can all connect to no matter whether we're in, you know, China or Japan or Africa or Canada. And that model is, is, uh, has a lot of layers and a lot of depth and, my exposure to that started more just with the naturalist focus. And then this is, this kind of ties into your question of where did forest play come from? I was at a training program there called the mind of mentoring, and it was in Duval, Washington. And one of the things they asked us to do, which at the time in my, as a 20, 20 something year old, I thought, oh, well, this is a silly thing. Why are we doing this? They, they asked us to attend the graduation ceremony for a number of the children that had attended their um, their program. They were having a graduation, these teens. And in my mind, as a 20-year-old male, <laughs> I'm like, why am I doing that? I don't know these people. <laughs> you sounded like an old man when you were 20. That's amazing. <laughs> what I, well, this, is, this is silly. I just want to be a better guide. Um, I, don't right. really, I don't really care about these people. And, you know, it may sound a bit harsh, but what was really interesting was what stuck me about with me about that experience. So we went in and, you know, there was a little potluck that was happening, lots of people mingling about, um, including a lot of the other people attending this course. But what really was impressed upon me was just how those children, those teens that had graduated through their program, just how present they were, 
how confident they were in themselves. They had them stand up and speak. And here they were in a building that not only included their relatives, their grandmas, their grandpas, their their their, their parents, um, but all these strangers, these people that came for this course. And I can remember being a teenager and you could never have put me in the position where I would stand up in front of not only my family, but all of these people from all over the world and have me speak about my experience in a really heartfelt, moving way. And each one of the kids, not just one, every single one of those kids, they stood up. And when they spoke, they spoke like they were grounded and connected to something much bigger than themselves. They, I got the sense that they knew who they were, why they were here, um, what they were going to achieve somewhere in life. And even though they may not have known exactly what maybe career they were going to go on. They did have a good sense of kind of what the essence is that they were meant to be here to do. Uh, you know, another way of saying that is they, they sort of had a good understanding of what their gift was, what they were here to share with the world. And teenagers understanding that, that was so powerful. I, I remember sitting there and just thinking, I don't know what these people are doing, but whatever it is, is amazing. And to sit here and not just hear what they have to say, but to feel what they're saying is, is so powerful, way more powerful than somebody standing up and telling me how great this model is. To actually be there and to feel that sense of community, that sense of connection that was developed. And you could literally feel that connection to nature, self, and others through those children that were standing up. And, and I remember leaving and my wife was at the same, the same program. I remember thinking, wow, if I ever have kids, I'm going to send them down here because I don't know what they're doing, but it's good. And I would really like it if my own children could have that sense of presence. So when my own children came around, um, it was a number of years later, the thought was, okay, well, what are we going to do now? Where, where is one of these programs close to home? And so my wife and I had this idea that, well, all we need to do is share what we learned about the Eight Shields model. We'll, we'll share what we learned with a bunch of these key families that are in town. And then we'll all work together and build you know, a community that can raise our kids. But the, the plan wasn't that I would do it. The plan was that we would work together and we would share this and I would continue my job. I wasn't planning on leaving my job that I had at the time. Just, well, I'm, we're all going to work on this together. It'll be kind of on the side and our kids will learn from all of these amazing people who are here locally. And we did that workshop and got a lot of great feedback on it. And then we just kept getting calls and saying, well, okay, well, when are you going to do it? I said, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. Did you get guilted into forest play? No, Is that no. what happened here? <laughs> the, plan, the plan here was that we would we work together, right? And you would take my kids for a little while. I would take your kids. And we'd kind of share. <laughs> and the, the community would be built that way. And uh-huh. um, and they said, no. And, and my I, I turned it down a number of times. It's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. No, no, I, I'm busy. I have my own work that I need to do. And about the third or fourth time somebody calling and some people actually that didn't attend the workshop were calling. I said, okay, 
okay, I've, I've been around long enough to know that when things start coming in that way, maybe I need to listen. Maybe there's something I need to listen to here and we'll, we'll see what happens. And I ended up connecting with uh, an old friend of mine, Corey Stevens. And Corey um, was on Pat Leaf. He was working at Woods Homes, was familiar with the eight shields and had done a lot of training in that world on his own. And the two of us ended up reconnecting on an online workshop with John Young. And uh, we thought, okay, if Canmore is asking, Canmore and Banff are asking for, for this, why don't we try it together? And because he had lots of experience working with children and working specifically with youth at risk, I had more of the guiding background. The two of us thought, okay, well, between the two of us, maybe we can figure it out. <laughs> You know, maybe, maybe it'll work. And um, so we did. We tried it. And, you know, at the time, my thought was, you know, I have no idea if this is going to be a complete flop. You know, we could we could start this thing and nobody will, you know, it could be that nobody wants to come. And so we started really small. We just started running on Friday afternoons when the kids were out of school, uh, connected with that group of families that... Um, we're familiar with the workshop that we did as well as some of the work that Corey had done. And we started our own little program called it forest play and in fairly short order. I mean, this is in retrospect, right? Um, in fairly short order over probably the course of two to three years, the program actually did grow quite quickly. And where is it standing today? What is it, what does it look like? And I know there's programs kind of like this all over Canada and pro- probably obviously all over the world, but like, what does yours look like? That's pretty exciting, actually, that there's so many that are that are all over the place. In, in 2011, when we started, I think there was maybe three sort of forest schools. There was others that were following the Eight Shields movement. Um, so there was more than that, certainly in, in Canada, but there was about I counted it about three that I could at least find on online that were doing doing this. There weren't very many. Um, so what does Forest Play look like? Forest Play is a program that is 100% outside all year round. And we run everything from full day programs that are 9 to 3 to half day programs that are like 12 to 4.30. And there's parented programs. So if you have children that are in like the 2 to 3 year old range, you can come with them. And we work with the parents and with the kids. There's four to six-year-old programs where the kids are independent, and those happen during during the week. So people will sometimes um, take their kids out of school, uh, say for a day, so they can come to Forest Play and have that uh, that outdoor experience and that outdoor connection built. Some people whose kids are not in school, they're the preschool age, we get to see them a few times a week throughout the year. And then on Friday afternoons, we, we run the programs for the older kids, and during most of the year, it's for sort of six to 12-year-olds. And in the summer, we go up as high as 14 year olds, fourteen years old as well as for summer camps. Yeah, so that's what Forest Play looks like. And from uh, the children's perspective, you know, it's an opportunity to be outside, to be outside of a structured school or sports system and to have the freedom to not only play, but to build some really interesting and fun skills, whether it's working with knives, we're working with fire, we're building shelters. Last year, the kids really wanted to make some of their own skis. So we learned how to split logs so that we could build planks out of them and they could use those planks to to become their skis. Uh, Can I ask, what what age do you introduce the knives? (laughs) Yeah, knives get introduced um, generally by the time they're six. 
I know some places do as early as, as three. Um, we introduce uh, vegetable peelers at age sort of in that age three to five zone. We just find that their coordination isn't quite there yet. And they're not as interested, actually, as, as the older kids. The interest seems to build from about six onward. But yeah, they have they have a blade of some kind in their hand as early as three, four. Can you give me a couple more examples of what you're teaching and at the end of the day or the end of the program or after a few years, like what kind of skills are they building? Well, there's there's the concrete skills and then there's like there's the the skills that are happening in behind this. There's the social skills and the development there because there's there's all of that happening. So in terms of sort of concrete, more what often are called hard skills, kids are going to leave with the ability to do aidless navigation. So the ability to find your way through the forest without your GPS and without your compass. So how do you get from point A to point B? How do you navigate that landscape? How do you move even off trail, for example, and find and find your way? So that's a big thing that I think is really important that the kids at a forest play will leave with is they they know how to move through the landscape and find their way. These are things that will might save their lives, right? If they're play, if they're spending time outside. Yeah, I think in more ways than one, right? Because with the system that we work with, if we're only teaching a skill for the sake of a skill, we're actually missing the point. Um, a lot of that stuff we work with metaphor, and so you know if you're trying to wayfind, part of it's finding your way in life, not just finding your way in the forest. So you know how, what do you do when you don't know your way? What do you do when you find yourself in a situation where you're not sure how to get back or where to how to go forward? And the idea that the first thing you want to do is just stay calm, kind of open up your senses. Look for some something that's that's familiar. Maybe it's a handrail. It could be a river. It could be a mountain. Those are your guides. Maybe in the physical landscape, but in the landscape of your own life and your emotion, you're also looking for those things. So we all get lost. We all all run into times in our life when we're not sure where we are, and what happens in the forest as we're wayfinding can help us when we're trying to wayfind in our own life. You know where where are those touchstones? Where are those stepping stones? Where is that familiar piece that I can use to help guide me when I feel lost? And how do I, how do I find a sense of calm instead of just running around in circles, um, getting even more lost? I feel like I'm learning all this stuff slowly and organically on my own. I kind of wish I had a school like this growing up. Mind you, my school was, was our farm and growing up in nature. And I was very lucky that way. But if I was to ever have kids, like I would 100% try to find something like this for them to learn. Yeah, you may have learned a lot of that on your own without knowing it. We make the mistake oftentimes of think of associating learning with school and that it only really happens at school. The schooling system is a pretty new system and learning itself is much older. You know, we, we learn every single day and all your experiences that you had on, on the farm would have provided you with some really interesting things that others can't teach. I can remember going to a Waldorf school presentation and this kind of connects into the, the farming piece. And the guy was an engineer who had multiple patents to his name. I'm trying to remember that his name, his name, first name was Michael, I think. Anyways, he was saying that when he was hiring other people to work for him, there were certain things that they would look for beyond that degree, right? So, okay, if you're going to be an engineer, you need an engineering degree, but if you're going to be the kind of engineer that's developing new things, then they found that 
those people that had a background in farming often exceeded those that did not because when you're on a farm you have to problem solve if your combine breaks you're going to need to try and fix that on your own because otherwise you're sitting around waiting for a mechanic and you may blow your window for when you need to get the crop off there are certain things that just aren't working you're going to need to be able to fix you know as a child i had the benefit of um, playing a lot at a friend's farm just down the road from where we lived and you know, the amount of forts that we built in the haymow and the things that we swung off of on the beams and yeah. the, the, the things that we learned sometimes the hard way, you know, yeah. it was a lot. And, and I think we underestimate, uh, you know, we underestimate the value of those experiences. So, yeah, the other thing, this, this, this um, Michael DeLeo, that's what his name is. Yeah, he, uh, the other thing that he said was musicians. So people mm. with music also made really good engineers who could come up with new plans and people who worked on old cars. Mm, why that specifically? Because they tinkered. It's almost like the link for me that you're, as you're describing it as creativity. Yes. Like, that's what it is for me is that link. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson. That's a bit of a side story. Where, where, what was your original question that I was trying to answer? I don't remember. Uh, what is forest play? Is that what we originally asked? Yeah. <laughs> what is forest play? You asked me about learning and, and the take-homes and the skills that the kids are learning. Yes, yes. Uh, that, that wasn't even an official question. I think I just went off. So I'm like, I don't have this on the paper. We've completely gone off script. So yeah, yeah. So let's let's just pull a thread here because yes, please. Because because we're going on this this thread of creativity and where do these where do these ideas come from? And we talked about farming and and music and those other pieces. So what are people taking away from forest play? Like what skills? One of the skills they're taking away from forest play is creativity because they have the freedom when they're at forest play to to choose. So. You know, let's take the ski example, just because it was um, it fits well with this the situation we're talking about. So last year during COVID, the kids were coming to Forest Play and they just needed a physical outlet because their world was so confined and constricted by all of the things related to COVID. It was you can't go here, you can't go there, you want to wear your mask here. School is online, school is offline. Their world felt like it was just falling down on them and because we'd had some of these kids for eight years we knew them well and kids even that were typically very calm that really loved to learn new things all they wanted to do 
was jump off of stuff and just go for it. <laughs> you know, so they would show up fourth place. Snow is, you know, up past your knees deep. And they arrive and they're just like, don't talk to me. I just need to jump off of something. So, you know, <laughs> That's not what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because you live in the mountains, there's, there's lots of places that have these great slopes, right? So we're not talking about jumping off a vertical cliff onto rocks below. They're yeah. sloped. But it's steep enough that if you get a good run at it, you can you know, jump off the slope and land in the deep snow on the other side. So these kids are just coming and be like running, running through this deep snow and then hucking themselves off this slope and then crashing at the bottom and rolling. It snows all over the place and all in their faces. So they did that for a while and they started to have comp- competitions with each other to see who could do 360s, right? And, and you, oh could see, you could see the ski hill kind of thing coming in. So to what, whatever they do at the ski hill is coming in at this point and they're trying to do 360s and jumps and, and other things. And then all of a sudden they just said, Dave, we need skis. Because <laughs> <laughs> so you know, we're, we're forest play. We're not at the ski hill. It's like, we need skis. It's like, well, I didn't bring any skis. It's like, we'll make some. And they just started hauling these logs out of the forest. Like, we're going to make skis. <laughs> and, so cute. and part of me is just thinking, with that, you're going to make a ski with that log? Like, yeah, give me a knife. <laughs> carve some skis and and part of what i have to do sort of as a mentor working with these kids is just kind of quell that sense of doubt right or try and teach them that well it's not going to work a lot of what we do is allow that creativity to come forward so that they can try it and yeah if it doesn't work it doesn't work but the worst thing that we can do is pop the bubble and just say well it's not going to work so this is this is how you do it says okay no problem here's here's the knives <laughs> so they sat down <laughs> and they're peeling this log and after about 15 <laughs> minutes the one boy is like this is gonna take a long time <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's gonna take a while <laughs> to get that to work <laughs> and, and i said okay well what is there another thing we could do and he's like well can i saw it so originally he wants to saw, but to saw lengthwise on the log. But the saws we had, the folding saws, there's no way that was going to work. They tried it. I let them give it a try. And they like, oh, this is, this is taking a long time too. And <laughs> so I said, okay, so what we're looking for as mentors are, is we're looking for these edges and then trying to meet them at their edge and then pull them past that. So we've met the edge of skill. Like, okay, the knife isn't going to work. The skills that we know, the saw is not going to work. Okay, can we split the log? Right. So how do you how do you split a log if we don't have a sawmill, for example? And in the olden days, what would people have done? What would our ancestors have done to split this log? And I introduced the idea of wedges and, you know, getting a wedge into the uh, into the wood and another wedge and hammering it in so that the tension of those wedges in that log will cause it to split along the grain. And the first time they tried it, they tried it with these little pencil wedges with these little micro sticks that just broke. Um, So they got a bit frustrated with that. And then they went on to do other things. But what I wanted to do the next week that we saw them was to try and follow up on that. So I, I made a couple of wooden wedges at home. And then while they were busy playing on the ice, my coworker and I, it was Kat and I, we got excited because we were going to split some logs. This is exciting stuff. So here's Kat and I, you know, splitting logs with these wedges. And then 
the kids that were doing the skis last week came over and they said, can we do that? They go, you bet you can do this. You know, come on over. <laughs> let's, yeah. give it, let's give it a try. Yeah. So then they were working at trying to split. And it's an art to split. And a lot of the trees here grow with a twist in the in the grain of the wood. So it's hard to get them to split all the way along straight without having a, a board that's torqued. So they wrestled with it. They played with it. They got their planks that they, they made and were pretty happy about, about this experience. But what they're learning through this, what they're taking away is they have the ability to solve their own challenges, right? They don't have to have me tell them, for example, what to do. I gave them some ideas. They had the choice about whether or not to follow through with that. It was their thing that they were interested in, right? This was their idea. I didn't say, let's make skis today. It was their thing. They problem solved it with each other uh, as they were trying to figure out how to get the wedges to work. They failed a few times, learned from the failures, and then picked themselves back up and kept going and tried different things. Those life skills of being able to creatively figure out what solutions are to a problem, to come up with their own ideas, follow through and try and problem solve them until they can develop something that works. Being able to work together and talk to each other, because when that kind of stuff happens, there's lots of arguments back and forth. Like, you're doing it the wrong way. Why are you doing it that way? That won't work, right? And they, they have that and they need to work together to cooperate because they need each other's help because they can't really do it on your own. It doesn't work as well. They need each other. Uh, so that's where again, you can start seeing those connections in that activity and how those are developed. So what are they taking away from forest play? Well, they're taking away independence. They're taking away creativity. They're taking away problem solving. They're taking away a connection to the landscape that's deeper than just walking through it. Because now when they go through the forest, they don't look at the logs just as logs. They look at them. They're looking at the grain. How straight is that grain? How curvy is that grain? Their relationship to the landscape and the things that grow in it is different um, because of that experience. And that's just one little example right, as one activity that, that unfolded during forest play. So they're taking away those skills. And that's on top of things like, well, how do you light a fire, you know, for example? And how do you light a fire without matches? How does that happen? The application of that to the natural world is obvious and to their lives. But again, if all we're doing is teaching how to light a fire, we're kind of missing the point, right? If you want to light a fire, first you need a spark. And at, that spark needs to land on something that's flammable. When the spark lands on something that's flammable, it's going to need fuel and it's going to need air or else it's going to, uh, going to go out. And the same is true of any idea. So the creativity process needs a spark. After you've got the spark, it needs to land on something. If the spark doesn't land on something flammable, it's not going to go anywhere. And you need to keep feeding that fire, whether it's with air or whether it's with fuel. And if you do that, then your idea will take off too. I relate, like, as you're describing this selfishly, I'm thinking about uh, starting a business a year ago and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and how much that takes, not just a spark, but the, everything you just described, I'm just like, I, I'm piecing things together into my own experience and my life experience. And you, you know, you had said that building these skills, this is one of my questions, you kind of already answered it, but it, it builds creativity, resilience, and emotional intelligence. Is there anything else you want to elaborate when, on the emotional intelligence side? On that side, because you've already answered the creativity and resilience side. That's exactly what you were just describing. Yeah, 
it's it's kind of funny, you know. I do these leadership programs for corporate groups, like with with Shell and Chevron and a number of others that come to the Vamp Center. And one of the groups, they they came in and they had asked me to come in and do an outdoor piece specifically around building resilience and built part of building resilience. I think empathy is a big a big piece of that. But they, there was a specific link to empathy that needed to be developed in the program that I was doing for this group because they had a, an expert on empathy that had come in from Harvard, actually, who had come in to teach them about empathy. And so in my mind, I'm just thinking, you know, this is really fascinating, right? So we have these quite high-end corporate leaders, and the focus for this corporate group is developing empathy. So that tells me two things. One, it's missing. Right? They're not going to pay for somebody from Harvard to come in to do this and some other person you know, like me to come out, take them for a walk in the woods and build on that idea of empathy if there's no need. So it's missing. There's a need for it. And it also tells me, because I'm working with children, my focus is a lot on what's happening with, uh, with children, is that it hasn't happened at an early age for these people. So for the corporate leaders of today, if they didn't learn empathy when they were at school or when they went through life, why? What's missing? Where's the missing picture here? And I used to think that forest play and some of the, the leadership work that I did at the Bounce Center was sort of separate. They were two separate worlds. And it was sort of in that moment I realized, no, these things are really linked. They're really linked. Because if I do my job well at forest play, those kids will have empathy. And then they won't need to do empathy training later. I think the next generation, especially, and the developments in psychology and realizing how much vulnerability and empathy are such key components to being leading life in such a beautiful way and navigating life in a, in a difficult way at times. That's how I live my life is with empathy and compassion and vulnerability. But as you, you're talking about teaching adults, what's the biggest difference in teaching kids about nature and adults about nature? Yeah, adults tend to approach it more with their mind and children approach nature with their heart. Oh, <laughs> that's, oh that is a... Uh... You know, when speaking of empathy, you know, to build empathy, we really need to expand our senses. You know, what's happening now with you know, adults included um, and children is that our, our focus is narrowed to the point where we're spending most of our time looking at something very small and very focused. And in order to survive sometimes our commute, you know, to get to work from wherever we're from, we have to dull our senses. So in order to get there, like, because it's so busy, whether it's on the Deerfoot going to Calgary, whether you're on the... 401, you know, driving through Toronto area. I drove through there just recently when I went home to visit my family. And I mean, there's a lot of sensory stimuli. So a survival strategy we have is to dull our senses. The consequence of dulling our senses is that we don't actually perceive all that's around us. And because we can't perceive all those things that are around us, it's really hard to develop empathy because empathy really is the ability to see from multiple different perspectives. But if our world has gotten shrunk to the size of a screen, our ability to really see from perspectives, not only just human perspectives, but non-human perspectives, is just not there. It hasn't been developed. And our brain patterns get developed through constant repetition. Right? So we have an experience, and then we repeat it, and then we repeat it again. And those brain patterns um, become like shortcuts in our mind. Right. So if we're always shutting down our senses, then that becomes the default. 
until you come to a place like forest play where we're going the other direction we're slowing everything down and we're constantly working to expand our senses and with the young children those two-year-olds those four-year-olds that are coming with us out into the forest we're constantly making uh, you know developing games activities stories that are designed to motivate and inspire them to you know expand not only those main senses the sight sound hearing etc but also to get into get into some other types of sensory awareness whether that's the sense of cold sense of hot the sense of direction uh, sense of balance all of those things are survival senses that various psychologists have actually said are are actually other senses that we we have that we just don't focus on so in forest play we're constantly you know we're walking on logs we're balancing we're playing on uneven terrain we have to have that sense of balance develop well or else we can't function we can't play the games that we're playing we can't walk in the terrain where we're walking we can't throw ourselves off that slope that i was mentioning earlier with those with those kids so that empathy gets developed through not only the expansion of our sensory awareness but the expansion of our awareness beyond humans when we interact directly with the caterpillars and the butterflies and the toads and the frogs and the minnows we get to know them not just as things that are out there but that as as really play partners you know the squirrel is chattering in the woods and we bring awareness to why the you know the squirrel is chattering i wonder what's going on or when the kids get older you know you want to really sneak up on that person over there in that game well if you're not if you have if you broadcast the intent that you're sneaking well that blue jay over there is going to call you out and so is the squirrel so they're watching you the whole time and there we're not just out here by ourselves all of these other animals are around us whether it's that baby snowshoe hare somebody stumbled into when they're playing hide and seek or whether it's the blue jay that's calling from you know the aspen tree uh well we're trying to play some variation on hide seek and chase before i get to my my last question dave i just want to quickly mention back to your you just talked about this a couple of moments ago it's funny how many people I've had on this podcast, outdoor athletes, scientists have said this, doctors who love nature as much as you and I do, they say they don't necessarily notice the effects of nature when they're in it. It's more when they've been removed from it from a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Melissa Lem, she was telling me how she had moved to Toronto and she's like, why am I not feeling as <laughs> as great? Because she now she lives back in Vancouver, as example. Or an athlete, uh, her name is Ruby West. She's a cyclocross athlete. And she notices how not great she feels when she's not training or not outside for a few days. Those are just two, two examples that I can think of. Yeah. So I get the sense you've got a question to go with that. Uh, sort of. I just almost was just making a point and seeing if you, um, how you, maybe your thoughts on that. How you don't really notice until you're, you don't have it. You're like, oh, I feel like crap because yes. I haven't been outside for a few days. Absolutely. Yeah. If I spend... I, you know, I'm a bit spoiled. I, I'm outside all the time. But if I spend a lot of time inside um, doing office work um, or when we were, do, you know, during COVID, when we, I was spending a lot of time with my children doing schoolwork online, I didn't feel very good either. And I had to go for walks just to recenter and ground. And there's been a ton of research. I think the person you spoke to, was it Melissa Lamb? Melissa Lem. Lem. Does she do forest therapy? She prescribes park prescriptions. Yes. So she, in that podcast, she, undoubtedly she covered all the research that's been done around 
just how important it is to be outside and the impact that has on our both our mental and our physical well-being. Uh, the amount of research that's gone into that, whether that's in Japan with the Shin, Shinrin-yoku or whether that's you know with the Eight Shields kind of movement, there's so much research done around the changes that happen physiologically in our brain and emotionally is profound. You know, even just a little bit of time outside can help our, you know, can reduce the amount of stress hormone that's moving yeah, in our systems. And some of that, I mean, if you're outside for long enough, it can even boost your white blood cells and it can last for, I can't remember what the stat was. It's weeks after. If you have a long sort of time where you've been immersed in nature and it's like it's maybe three days or four days, it's not that long then there's lasting impacts for weeks after that, um, lasting benefits. And so if we don't have that connection, if we live in a world where it's us or, or the children, then the impacts, I think, they compound. And that's how we end up with what Richard Lude calls nature, nature deficit disorder. It's funny because I wrote all these questions and you've like slowly answered a, a lot of them as we're going and it's, it's wonderful. But one question I definitely want to, the last question I want to talk about is how have your daughters inspired you when it comes to what you do? And how you live your life now, considering, you know, you, there was a point where you didn't have them. And now what you're doing is, is pretty magical for kids. They've been a source of huge inspiration. And I think you, you would probably know from your, your work that you've done and, and many others who spent a long time doing something, you know, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. There's been a lot of tough times. You know, there's been times when I've thought, wow, I don't think I'm really doing a good job at this. Or I think, think I'm going to quit because I'm not really having the impact that I want. Undoubtedly, part of what's kept me going is my own kids. It's seeing them and noticing sort of what what they're exploring outside of, you know, the programs that I have developed. And I know there's a healthy need for them to do other things than what daddy does, right? So um, they've been enrolled in a whole bunch of other things as well. But I guess uh, for me, what I've noticed with them is that nature is a happy place. And through other work that I've done on sort of personal growth, and when people are working through hard times, you know, one of those cornerstone elements to that work is that you need to have a safe place, uh, right? You develop that safe place first before you can dive into um, the more complex or challenging issues that um, that you're confronted with. And so my hope is, is that the kids that are in forest play consistently and for longer periods of time is that long after I'm gone, the forest will be a safe place for them. And it will be uh, that place where they can go to have that sense of, of calm and that sense and that maybe if they need a creativity boost that they just go there on their own without needing, needing to know why, right? They just, I just feel better in the woods. Like, well, perfect. You know, if we've done that, then I think forest play has been successful. And part of what drives me is the hope that it, within my own children that, their experiences with their friends and the staff that I have, because it's not just me, right? There's a lot of other staff and I've seen them being mentored by some pretty amazing women that have come in to work with me. And I've watched that and I've just thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. This is some really great stuff going on right now between them and these amazing women over here. And, and there does need to be that connection sometimes I think between women and women and men and men so that there is, I don't know what it is, but as, as people develop over time, those, those role models need to be there uh, for them. And so 
so part of me continuing with forest play is hoping that that not only can help my kids, but help, help others as well. And I may not get to see the impact outright, but based on what I've learned over time and seen with other schools, like wilderness awareness school, um, my hope is that at least in some small quantity, it will be there and there'll be that sense of connection for them and for others. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us and obviously the next generation and having, I think, probably a profound impact on these children just from having this short conversation with you. But where can people find some more information, whether it's, you know, in their own community, something similar to yours, or maybe they want to find out more about what you do? Where can they find it? Yeah, great question. In terms of other, other schools, there's there's quite a few that have, have popped up in the last decade or so, a, a lot more. So um, the Child and Nature Alliance has a website and there's links to different forest schools that are across uh, across Canada. They're, they're definitely worth exploring and looking at. You could Google forest schools or nature schools that would connect you to, uh, to some in, in your area. There's a book called Coyote's Guide that's written by uh, John Young, Ellen Haas, and, oh, I'm sorry, I'm missing the third. Um, there's three authors on that book, but there's in the back of that book, there's a list of partner schools that have developed programs based on the shield centric model. Um, so there's a, there's a list there. In terms of doing your own sort of research or figuring things out, uh, there's uh, Coyote's Guide is a great resource. There is a lot of resources for forest kindergartens. There's a few books that are out on that. There's Richard Liu's work. He's got a number of books out right now, but he wrote Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. So he he's a journalist that has really synthesized a ton of research and information on why we need to develop stronger connections between the natural world and children. His books are bestsellers and uh, easily find findable in bookstores and uh, and online. Dave Verhulst, this is a fantastic conversation. Thank you. That's all I can really say. This was wonderful. Yeah, thank you. It's so great to look at the podcast that you've developed and it's nice to be able to share these stories too, you know, to with you. So I I feel grateful that you you got in touch with me and we had this opportunity to share stories today. Thanks for listening. For more, let's take this outside. Go to let's take this outside.ca. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.